Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. We're in the, uh, in the middle of a, of a brief little series I've been doing called uh, Prequels to Calvary. And prequel is a, a movie or a story that goes before the, the main movie. So like when you saw The Godfather, The Godfather 2 was actually a prequel to Godfather 1. It's the story behind the story. So prequels to the cross. We talked about ways in which we saw pictures uh, of, the, of the cross before the cross itself. The serpent lifted up in the wilderness was one of those. The ram caught by its horns in the, in the thicket um, at the uh, sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac uh, there, or the near sacrifice of Isaac. But tonight is the, uh, and the prequel to Calvary is the rejected scapegoat. I want to preach tonight on Yom Kippur. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to the book of Leviticus, I'm glad, I I really appreciate the fact that nobody groaned. Usually, when you say to a congregation, open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, you can see people say, oh, no. It's not a book, maybe, that we read and just, you know, it's not just spine tingling. A lot of it is ritual. A lot of it is um, is the how to do the sacrifices, all of those things, the, the rules, the laws, the the... It, it's from the word Levi, from the, from the Levitical uh, tribe, how to do the work of the priesthood. So I'm going to read a pretty lengthy passage, and it, and it, is, a little, um, it is a little technical. But I want you to hear, Yom Kippur is the, it, it, the celebration, the ancient Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur was filled with the most elaborate of all Jewish rituals, was Yom Kippur. And here is the account of it, the account of it in Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to read the first 22 verses. I know that's lengthy. And then we'll read verse 33 and 34. Leviticus 16. And the Lord spoke unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and he shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired, and these are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his flesh in water before he puts them on, and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement, hence the word Kippur. Yom meaning, Yom means day in Hebrew, day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, 
and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer it for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with it and to let it go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off of the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people. Up to this point, please notice, the sacrifices have all been to purify Aaron and the Aaronic household, his family, he and himself and his family. And this first goat of the two, remember they brought two goats, they cast lots, this is the goat for sacrifice. This sacrifice is for the Israeli people. This sacrifice is for the people of God. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people and bring its blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions in all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle and for the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath finished atoning for the holy place and for the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. This is the scapegoat. This is what we're zeroing in on. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. One rabbinical writer says that the inherent instruction was to press heavily, to press heavily upon the goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of that goat and shall send it away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon it all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. In other words, a wilderness. And he shall let it go and let go the goat in the wilderness. Just two things before we pray. Please notice that it says a fit man. In other words, they want someone who will be able to take the goat all the way out there, take it out there and walk back. They don't want somebody just to shoo the goat away. Furthermore, 
In the, in the rabbinical writings, the indication is that they not only took the goat into the wilderness, they wanted to make sure that the goat would not come back, bringing those sins. So they would take the goat to the top of a tall cliff and push it off so that it would die by the impact at the bottom of the cliff. That's the scapegoat. Put your hands on your Bible and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that you will take this simple little message and so impress it upon our hearts here in this great church tonight, those that are watching via the internet, everyone who will ever receive this message by any means whatsoever, may it be so impressed upon our spirits that we would be forever changed by the truth beyond the limitation of the speaker or the inability of the hearer. May it witness with the blood and may we receive it at the level of faith. May faith arise. We believe you for it. I thank you for it in advance in the wonderful name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. I want you to imagine a rude Irish cottage on the edge of the highlands, the hills. And uh, the people there are obviously poor. The walls are mostly made of sod. And it's obvious poverty. As we move closer, the camera of our imagination allows us to go in through the front door. We see stretched upon a upon a handmade rude table is the body of a loved one recently deceased from that cottage. The corpse of a man is there, covered with a sheet, and the room is empty. Now see that sitting upon the breast of that corpse is a dish with a loaf of bread, and beside it, a goblet of wine or ale or beer, and the cottage is empty. As we watch, out of the forest, stealing around the edge of the cottage and entering in, comes a dreadful-looking little man who approaches, looks around to see if anyone is there, approaches the corpse, takes the bread, and eats the bread, and then drinks the beverage, whatever it is, usually beer or ale or sometimes wine if they could afford it, and leaves. This man is called a sin eater. Sin eaters were used by superstitious families, largely in Ireland and Scotland, but throughout Europe, in fact, and even though we may not know it, some of those emigrants brought that superstitious custom into the hill folk of America in the 17th and 18th centuries. Sin eaters were employed by the families of people who had died, usually people that had died suddenly, because they were afraid that having died suddenly, maybe through an accident or a, or a heart attack or stroke or whatever it was, having died suddenly, they didn't have time to make a last-minute confession. 
So they had died with their sins in them. So they paid this poor wretch called a sin eater to come in and they believed that the sins would come up out of that corpse, fasten into the bread and the, and the liquid, and that the sin eater, because he was so poor, they pay him a, a, a few, a few coins. He was so poor that he couldn't even afford bread, starving, so he would eat the bread and drink the liquid and take the few coins, sacrificing his eternal damnation for the sake of a moment of bread and a few coins. Obviously, the sin eater was despised in the village. They believed that all of the sins of all of the corpses inhabited him, usually a man, that he was racked with those sins, damned with those sins, inhabited by those sins. So they didn't want him in the midst of them. So they often lived lonely and, and uh, the lives of hermits, despised and rejected. And they had, they had given up their souls. It's, it's what is called an apotropaic ritual. An apotropaic ritual is a ritual that we do to ward off evil. And we are sometimes guilty of apotropaic rituals ourselves without even thinking about it. Ever been in the last second of a basketball game and one free point, one, one free shot, uh, A free throw will win the game. Come on, come on. That's an apotropaic ritual. Cross your fingers, knock on wood, throw salt over your shoulders to ward off evil. An apotropaic ritual is involved in this, to take evil out of this corpse and then send evil away. I believe in my heart that it is an, a perversion of the great wonderful truth of Yom Kippur. The question that causes Yom Kippur to be important is this. What do we do with our sins? What do we do with our sins? We read in the Bible, you know, behold, all of sin to come short of the glory of God, but that feels like an oatmeal indictment. All of sin to come short of the glory of God. I mean, think, how many of you here at any point in your life, before you were a Christian believer, or at any point in your life, you ever straight out, I'm straight out told a lie, just lied. Raise your hand. And the rest of you are lying now. Now you can raise your hand. You raise your hand now. Next time I ask that. How many of you ever, how many ever stole anything? I mean, just picked up something that wasn't yours. You just, at some point or another, just, I don't know, shoplift a bag of peanuts or something. You just stole something. Anybody? How many ever had a, a lustful thought or let, let lust come into your eyes? You know? How many ever, How many ever hated somebody 
hated somebody so badly that you that you want deep in your heart you wanted to kill him. How many how many ever committed an actual an actual criminal act? You you committed a crime. Okay? I I don't know I wasn't really afraid till I started asking these questions. I, I'm in church tonight with some of the most dangerous people in Gainesville. So what do we what do we do with all that ineluctable mass of sin? The the high holy days that stretch across about a 10-day expanse in Jewish thought from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah lasts about two days and the high holy days end with Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah sort of symbolizes the, um, the new year. It, it means the head of the year, if you translate the Hebrew. The head of the year. The start, the beginning. And it kind of connects in a way to Adam and Eve and the creation, Adam and Eve in the garden. So if you think about it, the year starts that um, the, the day of, it's also called in, in Hebrew, the day of blasting, or, or, or some people say trumpets. So making noise and shouting, it's exciting, it's fun, a new beginning, creation, fresh start, Adam and Eve in the garden, it's fun, it's exciting, blow the trumpet, it's wonderful. And 10 days later, we need atonement. So actually, it, it, it embraces the bookends of the human reality. We just, uh, in the last three months, we had the, at, at the Rutland household, we experienced the birth of our seventh and eighth grandchildren. So my, my daughter, our, our daughter, uh, Allison always says, Mark, whenever one of them has done something good, they're your children. She said, I, she said, whenever one of them does something bad, they're our kids. So I went, our daughter, our daughter, Emily, the mother of this new one. I know you love Emily. She loves you. She loves to come preach for you girls. Thank God you're finally, I appreciate you finally getting my daughter straightened out. Thank you. So Emily was holding that newborn baby, little little guy, Everett. She's holding him, and she's kissing his little face. And she said, Daddy, look at his little mouth. Look at his sweet little mouth. I said, isn't it, darling? I said, it's hard for you to believe that 15 years from right now that that mouth will sass you. We all begin in dewy innocence. We all begin with Rosh Hashanah. It's the head of the year. It's the beginning. It's the start of life. It's joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. But at some point or another, we face the question, what do we do with our sins? We live in a world of fallenness. We are surrounded by the evil, which is the product of the sins of others. And we face the complications of life which we cause by our own sins. 
this uh, elaborate ceremony, the most elaborate of all Jewish ritual is, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There, there are a lot, there's so much in it. I, I could, I could teach for weeks and weeks and weeks, but let me just zero in on three things. There are three animals. First of all is the, the, the bullock. There's more than three, but let me zero on these three. The bullock is to, is this, the sacrifice for Aaron. In other words, God says, you don't even have a priest among you that's pure enough to meet me. Not even your priest is pure. God says, when I say that the whole nation of Israel has sinned, even the Aaronic priesthood has sinned. Not even Aaron himself can come in until he's cleansed. So the bullock is for Aaron and for his household. Now, let me just deal with this because what we're really going to deal with is the, is the, is the scapegoat. But I want to say this in passing. The Aaronic priesthood is abrogated, finished. We have an high priest that is not after the order of Aaron. He is after the order of Melchizedek. No beginning, no ending, eternal, everlasting, sinless, and perfect. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, he was tempted in every way that we were tempted, save without sin. So that there is no sacrifice that ever has to be made for our high priest because our high priest is sinless and perfect. Then, then there are these two goats. And, and this, when it says, Cast lots. I don't, they're not, don't, don't cheapen that. They're not shooting dice over the goats. They, they, they're waiting for the indication from God, which is which. So the one goat is chosen for sacrifice. That goat's sacrificed and his blood is taken in to be poured out for the sins of the people. A purified priest takes the blood of the sacrifice inside to to be poured out for the sins of the people. But that's not enough. They take the other goat. This is the goat we want to deal with. The scapegoat. Visualize this moment if you can. Jerusalem is packed. The people who can't get to Jerusalem for Yom Kippur are seeing it by faith. They're in villages in the Galilee and in the Negev. And they're thinking right about, right about now, the priest is laying his hands on that goat. And the priest lays his hands on, presses heavily on that goat. And the, the theological concept is that this sin mass is gathered, passes through this sanctified priest and into this goat. And it says the priest is to confess all the sins of the people. Now, obviously, he can't confess every individual sin, what theologians call atomic sins. He cannot confess each sin of each person. But he must go through some kind of litany, some catalog of sins. Lord, we confess to you 
wickedness. We confess to you iniquity. We confess to you that we are an adulterous people. We confess to you an idolatrous people. We confess faithlessness to you. We confess impurity to you. We confess bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness and on and on and on. Can you imagine what that felt like? As people in the crowd are standing there watching that priest call this out and press. And as he presses heavily, the little goat's legs begin to buckle. Until, don't you know the people are feeling, get him out of here. Get him out of here. If their sins are all gathering and being fastened in the body of that goat, when they banish him in the wilderness, they don't want any chance that he'll come back and bring them back. So they don't, they don't just want to be free of their sins. They are willing for that goat to experience absolute, total rejection and death that it will never come to them again. So the scapegoat is taken by someone who is strong enough to take him deep into the Judean wilderness and strong enough to walk back to make the declaration he's gone. It's very clear, a fit man. Takes him to the top of a cliff and pushes the poor goat over the cliff. Imagine as he looks down to see the goat shattered upon the rocks below, crushed. And he says, thank God for one more year, one more time, one more year. We'll do this again next year. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, Yom Kippur will come every year, he says. But for one more year, our sins are gone and they're never coming back upon us. When Jesus was on the cross, I did a study of this. And if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will hear this and correct me. I've never heard it, seen it written anywhere, so maybe I'm wrong about it, but I can't find except one place, one place in the whole Bible, in the New Testament, as far as I can find it, when Jesus is speaking directly to God, that he calls him God. As far as I've been able to find, my research showed me I spent a long time on this sermon. And as far as I can tell, every time Jesus talks to God, he calls him Father. Except once. On the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The unbreakable, co-eternal intimacy between father and son was ruptured on the cross. Every sense of rejection, of condemnation, anybody that ever, anyhow, any satanic impulse that ever said you were stupid or ugly or worthless or to be rejected or to be despised, All of that, not only all of that, but all of our sin, all of our corporate sin, every individual act gathered into some kind of corporeal mass and fastened into the body of one man as he hung on the cross. Wham! Imagine what that felt like. I can't imagine what it must have felt like if just my sins 
just mine. But all of the sins that have ever been committed or ever will be committed until the rapture of the church gathered into some kind of real, I don't know what it means, I can't get it, but gathered into some kind of boiling reality and fastened into Jesus' body. And he became our scapegoat. We think of him as the, as a, the blood upon the mercy seat, but I don't think as much of him as the scapegoat. I, I've never preached on this. That he's pressed heavily, weighs upon him, not just the physical horror, the humiliation, crucified naked. His own mother standing at the foot of the cross looking at his poor mangled naked body. Not just that, but rejected. There is hardly an emotional wound that rises to the level of betrayal. Betrayal. David said, it's not my enemy, O Lord, it's him that eateth at my right hand. Jesus looked down from the cross. Don't you know he thought, where's Peter? Hiding under his bed. Crying, where are all my friends? Where are the people I raised from the dead? Where are the lepers I healed? Where are the blind eyes that couldn't see could stand right here and see me on this cross? Where are they? Where are those who waved palm branches only a few days earlier? Hoshana, save us. Where, where are they? Now I see the high priest laughing at me, mocking me. He said he could save others, let him save himself. You come down from the cross, we'll believe in you. Even the thief on the cross beside him. You, you say you're God, you're dying just like I am. So David quotes or paraphrases the first verse of Psalm 22. Eli, Eli. My God, my God, even the Pharisees at the foot of the cross didn't even understand him. They thought he was calling on Elijah because Elijah and God both start the same way. Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Now, we need to make this perfectly clear. God had not deserted his son, but he allowed his son, to sense the darkness that covers our lives when we are separated from him. Not, not one moment from, not one moment from pre, from pre-creation eternity unto eternity, not for one split second as humans count time had there been a separation between the father and the son. Not in one single prayer insofar as I can find it. Had Jesus ever addressed his father in any way except father? And now his sense of the fatherhood of God is broken. Now he's God somewhere up there behind the darkness, behind the clouds. And I hang here on this cross rejected and despised. I, I, I wonder if anybody in the crowd said, there's our scapegoat. He's not only bearing our sins, he's taking them away. 
He's taking them away. That they will never, ever come again. Yes, he took our sins. But I, I, I feel that the Lord has spoken to my heart tonight, and I know I'm speaking to somebody here tonight. It's not just about sin or sinfulness, though God knows that's enough. The scapegoat is about rejection. The sense of being sent away as unworthy, dirty, filthy. To be rejected, despised, cast out. Don't ever come back again. I believe there are people in this room who have felt that at some point or another in their lives. Rejected by a father or an ex-spouse or by a friend or by a group or by a club. Maybe some visiting pastor or some pastor who's watching on the, on the internet. You've been voted out by your church. A church that voted you in, had a sign up, welcome to the new preacher 10 years ago. And now they've cast you out and sent you and your family away. And you feel not, you just feel rejected, betrayed. Jesus took all that into himself. He took all that. He experienced our rejection. As a result of that, we have therefore then these great promises. He became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. There's more. He was rejected that the book of Ephesians says we might be accepted in the beloved. He was despised that we might be beloved. He was made ugly that we might be made beautiful creations all new. He became our atonement, our perfect priest, our perfect sacrifice in a perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, with perfect sacrifice who bore away all of our rejection so that I can sit together with him in heavenly places. Who dare, who dares to reject us? Who dares to reject us? Our rejection, like our sins, has been borne away, and we bear it no more. We don't need a sin eater. It wouldn't work anyway. You can't put a crust of bread on the tummy of a corpse and let some poor, pathetic character come in and eat the bread and take away his sins and lift him out of purgatory. It didn't work. All it did was confuse everybody in the village and feed a beggar. I am not a cast off. I am not an orphan. I am not rejected. I am not despised. I am not forgotten. All of that, all of that went with the scapegoat. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.